It's great to be together this morning, and as we are headed to the book of Luke, once again in our continuing study of the life of Christ, before we do that, by way of introduction, look with me at Matthew chapter 7, just, just again to introduce where we have been a little bit. I entitled this section, If You Won't Believe the Word, You Won't Believe, you remember that from our study last week, Jesus has some unique ways of of saying that to those around him. And in a very famous passage during his preaching of the Sermon on the Mount, he, he talks about the, the spiritual phony as compared with the, the person who is real all the way through. Verse 24 of Matthew 7, he says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them. In your margins, you might have the alternate translation or your translation might say it and does them whoever hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to the wise man who built his house on the rock and judgment comes in in the analogy of floods it is the it is intended to convey the idea of judgment when the judgment finally comes that person's spiritual house will not crumble under the judgment Though all hell should endeavor to shake it, God will never forsake that person because in the fruit of their life there was saving power. There was the demonstration of newfound power to become like Christ and to obey the Lord's word. God became the authority in the Christian's life. God's word becomes the food for our soul. It is God's truth, though hard to obey and at times challenging to grasp. It is our inclination to know it and to act upon it. That is the Christian's life and heart. As opposed to verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them is like the foolish man who built his house on the sand when judgment came Great was the fall of that life. Great was the destructive end of that life. It is always the case with the spiritual phony. In fact, if you go back to verse 15, Jesus had begun the discussion by saying, Beware of the false teachers and prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They're phonies. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves, and you'll know them by their fruits. That's because it doesn't matter what they put up on the outside, as I said last week, this storefront. It only matters what is emanating from the inside and what ultimately the life begins to look like as time and truth go together. You allow enough time, the truth and reality of someone's life comes to the surface, Jesus said a good tree cannot produce bad fruit just like a bad tree at its roots cannot produce good fruit. Now as we have been noting in this final confrontation before Jesus heads to Jerusalem to die for sinners, in Luke's gospel Luke records several confrontations with those who are at the worst of this problem of being spiritual phonies. And he is addressing their spiritual phoniness in ways they hadn't thought they would be exposed in. They had always found ways to cover up who they really were on the, on the inside and look pious and look spiritual. And the reason they hated Jesus is because he keeps unmasking them 
in the most blatant ways, in ways they had never been unmasked before. And you remember he had said to them, you are those who highly esteem the things of the earth. Verse 15, what God finds detestable, you guys are all about. You're all about the things that are esteemed by human beings. You're all about appearance. You're all about the surface. You're all about the storefront. You're all about uh, what you can easily convince others is true in your life when really God sees the heart. We saw last time that the marks of this kind of life, first of all, Jesus exposes their greed. Greed is the mark of a false leader, a false teacher, someone who's a spiritual phony, even if they're not in a position of formal teaching. There are all kinds of hypocrites in the church who pretend to attach themselves to God's, God's word, but they're not. They don't do it. They don't act upon it. They hear it, and they have no intention of coming under its weightiness for their heart, for their soul, for their inner life. And the first mark he points out is that these guys are lovers of money. They're full of greed. Well, the Pharisees didn't like that, and so they began, as you know, to scoff at Jesus, verse 14. And why were they scoffing at him? Because they like to justify themselves in the sight of men, the, the text says. They craft an image on the outside, and we looked at that last time. But God knows the heart, and so what that tells you is that they're ignoring the fact that God can see everything, nothing is hidden, everything's going to be open, and everything is open to the Lord's eyes, so, so they are duped, they have seared their conscience. That was the third mark of the, of the false leader, the false teacher, or the spiritual hypocrite. They are not only lovers of the things of this earth, it's money, it's power, it's wealth, and it's control, and the influence that it gains them, the reputation it gains them, but they are those who then live a life of crafting an image on the outside and hiding what's really there on the inside morally, and in doing so, they sear their conscience. As we saw last time, God gave every one of us a conscience, and it can be informed with truth, And it can be seared as you ignore what it does to hold you to the standard you say you believe or hold you to the basic framework of right and wrong built into every human being. The more you ignore it, the more you sear it. And a false teacher has seared it in in some cases, the scriptures say, to the point where they are given over. But lastly, he says you, you esteem highly the things that are of the earth and what men esteem, and yet these things are detestable in the sight of God. And so we saw last time that they have a contempt for the truth, a contempt for the truth. And you remember, I mentioned that in verse 16, he basically says to them, everyone else seems to be clear on this, but you. doesn't mean everybody, he's not intending to say that everybody wants the truth or everyone in the crowd loved the truth or was saved. He's simply saying, look, you, the ones who've heard it from the law, heard it from the prophets, and then had enough time to test John the Baptist's message, the Old Testament prophet that came, that, that come in the New Covenant era as the transition, you heard it from him, the message of the kingdom. You guys who know it and ardently de- demand that people see you as followers of the law, everyone else seems to be getting it. 
In fact, they're forcing their way into it. They are striving to understand it, listen to it, curious about it. What is this? And you guys are repudiating it. Your claim to be the ones who are the most ardent defenders and strivers after the righteousness of God is an empty boast, in other words. In fact, he says, verse 17, everyone may be striving to find his way into the kingdom while you ignore it. But trust me, Jesus says, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of the letter of the law to fail. Now, we have to come to grips with this because there are some massive implications from verses 17 and 18. Massive implications. It is easier, Jesus says, for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. To summarize his main point here, and then we'll unpack it in a moment, but to summarize it, he is saying the laws which govern the universe are of infinitely more consequence than the universe itself. The laws which brought it into existence, the laws which govern it, God's sovereign laws, God's providence, his concurrent working, all of his creative power, everything that governs the universe is of infinite more consequence than the universe itself and its existence. Why? Why does Jesus say that? Because, and let's just sort of build our understanding, because what God says comes forth from his nature. Everything he says and declares comes out of his nature. And therefore, everything he has revealed is true by virtue of it coming from him, from his character. In other words, what he has declared about the universe he has created is absolutely unalterable. Human beings trust in the universe and, and what they see around them, and yet that is alterable. And in fact, one day it will pass away, the scriptures teach. But God's word that brought the universe into existence, it is absolutely unalterable. And when God is done with this universe as it presently exists, he will establish all that he has declared about the eternal things to come after all of this in the next era. How do we know that? Well, God had said, I am unchanging. You go all the way back to Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not make it good? The answer, obviously, to those rhetorical questions is obvious. Whatever God says... It is done, it is established, it is in stone. 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his nature or his perfections or the declarations he makes that emanate from who he is. You ought to look at truth this way, beloved. You ought to look at everything God says this way. In the hope of eternal life, Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, which God, who cannot lie, promised before times eternal. God cannot lie. What he says happens. What he declares is true. Even if you see with your senses and hear with your ears and see with your eyes the universe around you and you find some measure of security in its cyclical nature, that in and of itself pales compared to the unalterable nature of what God speaks. 
Hebrews 6.18, it is impossible for God to lie. Look, if God is unchanging, then what he says is unchanging. Therefore, since, since God, who he is, cannot be ignored by his creation without eternal ramifications, so his word cannot be ignored. Everything is revealed is as fixed as God himself is fixed. Furthermore, the scriptures teach that God is absolutely sovereign over all of that. Isaiah 43, verses 11 to 13, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Listen to this. It is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed. So he has action in there, the saving, and yet he has speaking in there. He's declared and he's proclaimed. And there was no strange God among you. That is to say, you might worship strange gods and false gods, but they don't exist. They're just a figment of your imagination and your unbelieving heart. They don't actually exist. You are my witnesses, he declares the Lord. I am God. Even from eternity, I'm he. There is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and who can reverse it. So God is unchanging, God's word therefore is unalterable, and God is sovereign in that he declares things and they cannot be thwarted. We've seen that many times in our studies. You get further in the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 55, and we come to familiar words. As the rain and the dew come down from heaven and water the earth and provide, and they provide seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so is my word as it goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me void or empty, but it will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. This is, this is God's truth. It will not go out without accomplishing the matter for which God sent it out. You might find the great summary very helpful in Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever. O Yahweh, your word is settled in heaven forever. In fact, God has magnified his word together with his entire character and his name associated with his character. Psalm 138, verse 2. You have magnified your word, some translations say, above your own name. It doesn't mean superior to your own name. It means in concert with, together with your own name. Your word is magnified because it emanates from who you are. And the sum of your word is truth. 119th Psalm, verse 60. That's why the book of Proverbs says in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 6, don't add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be proved a liar. So God is unchanging, therefore his word is unalterable. He is sovereign and his word, therefore, is unchanging and settled in heaven. Now, back to Luke's gospel, Jesus says it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away. That's an interesting phrase. It, it is, of course, a very familiar concept to the Pharisees listening to this confrontation. It was familiar to the Jews because all the way back in the Psalms, Psalm 102, verse 25 and 26 God said that heaven and earth, as it's presently known, will be done away with. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, O God, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Psalm 102, verses 25 and 26. They will perish, but you will remain. 
They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. Later, when Jesus is confronting um, the, the folks on the Temple Mount that have gathered, he says that very thing when he's talking about the end times in Matthew 24. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words shall not pass away. And you know, of course, Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3 says that very thing when unbelieving mockers come and they say, oh, it's, everything just continues to cycle through. I mean, we love the universe. We rely on the universe. We're comfortable with the universe. We like its cycles. It gives us a sense of human security. Everything's just going to keep going as it always has. And he says it escapes their notice but by, that by the word of his power, these things were created. And so in the day of the Lord, 1 Peter 3 verse 10 it will come, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Listen, God one day will bring all of that to pass, and it will be an unimaginable reversal of everything that we see in existence right now that we rely on, that we utterly rely on. But Jesus says that something so unfathomable in scope and power, the, the rolling up and reversal of our universe, something that magnificent and powerful and unfathomable, Jesus says that's a far simpler concept to fathom, that all of this would roll up and be removed. That is an easier concept to fathom than to imagine that God's word would fail in something it declares. Now, that is his point here. And he's not talking about God's word in the overarching general sense of truths. He's not saying that those are secure. He's saying that not even a single stroke of the letter of the law will fail in its intention. Wow. Not even a single letter or a stroke of a letter of the law will fail. You you would much sooner imagine the universe as you know it and find security in it disappearing tomorrow than to imagine that what you read in God's word will ever be alterable. Remember, he's confronting the Pharisees who'd been scoffing at his teaching about wealth. They love to be held in high esteem, not just for their appearance of holiness, but for their love, for their, their blessing from God, or so they assumed, because they were wealthy, because they extorted people for money, had lots of wealth, had lots of influence and power from their wealth, and they were viewed in their economy as, as blessed by God for having all that. So they wanted to appear holy, and they wanted to appear to be under the maximum blessing of God in front of other people. But Jesus says, you're lovers of money, and he hears them scoffing about these warnings about the deceitfulness of riches. And so what does Jesus do? He turns to the twisting of the law of God to fit an ungodly lifestyle. That's what he does. He doesn't just talk about their love of material things. He turns to pull the mask off of the way that they twist the law of God to fit an ungodly lifestyle. You say, what do you mean? Well, when Jesus brings up a stroke of the law, they knew what he was talking about. Jesus had said this same truth again back at the beginning of his ministry when he was preaching on the mountainside, Matthew 5.18, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. 
What was the smallest letter in the Hebrew scriptures? Well, it, it is the, the yod in the Hebrew al- alphabet. And if you saw it on a page, even if you didn't read Hebrew, it, it looks like just a little marking, just a little mark of the pen, maybe like we might have an apostrophe or something like that. It's very, very tiny. And he says, or a stroke of the letter of the law. That is literally the word that means a little tiny horn or or projection, a little offshoot. So it might be uh, how one, one letter in the ancient language was distinguished from another letter. So we, we could summarize Jesus' statement this way. You could sooner expect, you Pharisees, the, the entire universe to suddenly go out of existence than to record even a moment when the smallest letter or accent mark anywhere in Scripture actually failed in its intent. Now that is a strong statement about the Word of God. Now, there are some implications to that then. And I think these are important just to start to frame up now. The first implication should be obvious to us. To regard or to treat any part of God's truth, even the most seemingly insignificant little letter or mark, to treat it as optional or to treat it as antiquated, you know, out of date. People do that all the time. All the scriptures are out of date. Or to treat it as irrelevant. Oh, they're just irrelevant. They don't really speak to me today. Or to treat it as powerless You know, I try and I try and I try to obey and it just doesn't work. Really? The problem isn't you? Really? It's God's word. Suddenly you're the one person, the one life that tried it all perfectly and it's just not really honest. You're kidding. That's what we do in our minds. We either come to the scriptures and it's optional um, because we don't want to do the homework. So we get lazy or it's antiquated and out of date and irrelevant. It just doesn't seem to fit the cultural things that are going on. And I remember there's a whole host of blog posts that went around at one particular point a few years back, and I think it was trendy for people to say, hey, you know, when you're doing ministry and you're preaching God's word, you need to be asking, you need to be answering the questions that the people are asking. And I'm saying, well, what, what if the people don't know what questions to ask? Like, what if a, an unbeliever is looking for truth, quote-unquote, but they're looking for it on their terms? And so the questions they want answered are questions they've formulated in their own mind. What they want to know and the way they want to know it. And so I come along and I open the Bible to that unbeliever in this great exchange of the truth, and they're not interested in it. And their complaint is it's irrelevant. Well, it's only irrelevant because you, you have to understand it is God who gives us the answers that are truthful. And if God gives us the answers that are truthful, then we ought to know he's answering the questions he says we should be asking. Not the questions I want him to answer. I don't make demands of God's word. You say, well, then in what sense is it relevant? Look, relevance comes from God. God is relevant. Truth is relevant. What God says, therefore, is all that really matters. It's ultimately where true meaning lies. Not what comes out of me or what bubbles up in my mind. I can, I can make demands of the Bible and of God all day long and still be asking all the wrong questions. And not paying any attention to the context of Scripture, the context of God and what God says truth is. People do it all the time. So to treat 
the scriptures, even some insignificant little letter or mark as optional or antiquated or irrelevant or impotent, would be to charge God, Jesus says, with foolish or useless talk. It would be like saying his word doesn't really matter. God just sort of jabbered on. He declared things recklessly, knowing full well he'd never bring all those things to pass. He just sort of doled out a bunch of talk that really was foolish, reckless, irrelevant, optional. This is what we do if we come to Scripture that way. It's a terrible implication. Now think about the universe for a moment. I said to you before we rely on it. That's right. Every single day of our lives, we rely on the universe to not spin out of control, right? You you rely on it not to spin out of control. In fact, you get to the study of the book of Revelation when God starts to send supernatural phenomena from the heavens. It it seems like the universe is spinning out of control. And everybody starts to imagine this is it. The, The God, the Lamb who's on his throne has begun to judge. Why? Because everything you were finding security in is spinning out of control on that day. But until then, ah, you get up every morning, the sun comes up, you rely on it. You calculate every aspect of your life by the seasons, by the annual cycles of everything. Just like the Pharisees did, just like the ancient people of God did, just like every pagan nation has done throughout human history. We count on the fixed laws of nature to exist as we do, do we not? We trust the law of gravity and abide by it. It's a natural law. Those who don't abide by it, find out why they should abide by it. We trust the hydrological cycles, do we not? And we abide by them for our crops and our food sources accordingly. We live by the seasons. We live under the heavens and on the earth in a way that acknowledges that reality. And we believe it is reality and we yield to it. This is Jesus' point. You submit to the universe in things you cannot understand. It is large. It is cyclical. But you submit to it because you can see it, smell it, and hear it. You rely on that. And yet it is going to go out of existence in the plan of God. But his word will never change. And you don't rely on his word. You don't trust his word. This is a profound argument. And immediately you're struck with this conviction. We swear by these unchanging features of our universe. And we stake our lives upon them. And we still imagine that what God has said in his word is somehow just spiritual musings to be either repudiated or ignored or altered to fit our personal lifestyle. Beloved, now you understand why Jesus goes where he goes in verse 18. Because he has described the Pharisees to a T. He's describing to a T. You know why they got so angry with him? Because as it is recorded in Matthew 15, 3, he said, why do you yourselves transgress the law of God for the sake of your tradition? That's what I want to know, he said to them. Here's what the law of God says, and you find some convenient way to redirect it, redefine it, in order to uphold some tradition that you put over the top of people's consciences. And so in doing so, you depreciate the very law that you say you love in order to use it for your own advantage. 
Look with me for just a moment at Luke chapter 11. And you know this is exactly what we had studied when we were in the 11th chapter. But look at chapter 11, verse 37. And when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. You remember when we studied this? When the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you're full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? Give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. In other words, obey the scriptures instead of pretending on the outside that you love the scriptures when you get around it conveniently in order to have your robbery and your thievery and steal and extort. Verse 42, woe to you Pharisees because you pay a tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet look at this, you disregard justice and the love of God. These are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Look, you do the easy things, you tithe, you give the 10% to Israel's uh, national economy of your crops and you say that's righteousness but then you turn right around and you have no love for your brothers and you use all of your little extra rules as a way of avoiding justice toward other people. Verse 43, woe to you Pharisees, you love the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, you're like concealed tombs and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. And when some lawyer in the crowd jumped up, some scribe uh, among the Pharisees and said, when you say this, you insult us. And you, you know, Jesus didn't say, oh, I'm sorry, I should have been more gentle. No, he singles the guy out. Woe to you, lawyers, as well. You weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves won't even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your fathers who killed them. You see, Jesus brings up, back to chapter 16, Jesus brings up one of the grossest examples of how they so easily twist the truth so they can go on sinning while pretending to be the leaders of God's people. Notice verse 18 of Luke 16. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Now I know when we read that verse there are all kinds of individuals in here who have circumstances in their life that have led to the demise of their marriage. And so I don't want you to get distracted as if Jesus is somehow giving a, a treatise right here on the biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. He'd already taught on that extensively in Matthew 5, and it's recorded again in Matthew 19, another uh, excellent exposition of the issue Jesus had given. Here he is addressing what the Pharisees had done with an Old Testament principle from Deuteronomy 24. And Jesus is not implying that there's never an innocent party when somebody brings demise to a marriage. He's not saying that because Matthew 5 gives the principle by which the innocent are protected in a situation like that, as does the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7. There are those who are mistreated and put out. And I don't know anybody's circumstances in here. Sometimes people come to me, they talk about their circumstances to find out uh, what are the implications about the demise of their marriage. 
The reason Jesus is bringing it up here is because of what the Pharisees did with the principle in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 to 4. Now, we don't have to turn there, but basically it's this. God's law regulated marriage, divorce, and remarriage due to one problem, the sin problem that would eventually spread through the nation if God's heart on the matter were not, ta- were not taken seriously. If you thought of marriage lightly, if you could get rid of people that you had made a permanent vow to just blithely for godless reasons, for selfish reasons, then that would spread through the nation. And so God regulated marriage, divorce, and remarriage for that reason. And the law stated that if a man divorced his wife for what he deemed an indecency in her life, that's basically the Old Testament term, for what he deemed an indecency in her life. And that would not be adultery because at the time you were stoned. You you lost your life if you were found out to be an actual adulterer. The death penalty was in force in Israel. So if, if he thought she was indecent for some reason, something he didn't like, and she divorces, and he divorced the, his wife, and she remarries, and then her new husband does the same thing, puts her out for something that he didn't like about her, then the first husband, he says, cannot marry her again, since all of those ungodly reasons for divorce makes them all adulterers in God's eyes. In other words, it was an ungodly divorce. Yes, there might have been an innocent party, but the people who perpetrated the divorce, he doesn't want that going throughout Israel as some sort of way to deal with people you don't like or a marriage partner you don't want. That cannot be. God knows divorce was going to happen, and Moses gave the freedom to have a certificate of divorce because of the hardness of heart in people in in our culture and in Israel's culture. But God had laws in place to curtail two problems. One, the reckless devaluing of marriage by divorcing for reasons other than someone being unfaithful or abandoning the marriage. Just any reason at all. And secondly, the reckless remarrying of anyone regardless of their unlawful divorce in the past. Regardless of a godless way they got rid of their spouse in the past. Why? Because of the way that would devalue how God viewed the exclusivity of marriage. So those were the two reasons that Deuteronomy 4 regulated marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Jesus pulls that here into Luke 16 to point out what the Pharisees were guilty of. They took the principle, here it is, of Deuteronomy 24, and with a bit of grammatical sleight of hand, simply redefined the word for indecent. To them indecent or something unclean about their wife meant anything you didn't like about them. Anything at all. They claimed to uphold the law and they would bind people's consciences of God, uh, the, the consciences of God's people to every detail of the law and their own list of regulations added to it, of which there were, by the way, 613. You add 613 regulations, you bind people's consciences with it, and you make it a standard of righteousness. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to call you out on the one thing you will never admit, that you twist God's word to your advantage. They were were moral eisegetes. They introduced their own code into the straightforward text of Scripture so that it could have their sin and still be perceived as the holiest men in all the land. This is the worst. Sure, they they never openly condoned uh, cheating on one's marriage in in actual adultery. But here, they were committing it all the time in the eyes of God because they were simply redefining what God says. Look, God didn't want illegitimate, unrestricted divorce and remarriage spreading throughout the land 
which would thereby consume the people with the abomination of adultery. Adultery itself, as, as a destruction of the exclusivity of marriage, is an abomination. And he didn't want that spreading throughout the land. And so history records that they were divorcing their wives for the most outlandish causes all over the place. History records that some divorced their wife for perceived disrespect. Whatever, whatever form it took. Can you imagine that happening today by some legitimate thing? I mean, how often do we just respect each other? I mean, I know none of the ladies at GIBC do that but to their husbands, but I mean, come on, this is, this is what they did. It's how ridiculous they made it. Not being able to get pregnant or produce an error was cause for divorce. There are some on record as sending their wife away for bad homemaking according to their perception. Even some were divorcing their spouse for not being beautiful anymore. When all the while, the hidden reason they were doing this is to have what they wanted. In order to do that, they had to get around what God had clearly said in his law. And so what's the overall blast from Jesus? You men imagine that the law is yours to redefine and toy around with. That was his blast. But you had sooner imagined that the known universe would go out of existence than to imagine that you're actually able to use anything in Scripture to your own advantage. That's his point. You can redefine your case for divorce all you want. But what God says about it remains the real truth. He hates what you're doing. It's a sign not of the flexibility of God's standards, but of your unbelief. And it's clear, he says, that you do not tremble at God's law, no matter what you preach to others. The proof, therefore, is in the fruit of your life. And most importantly, how you treat God's word. If you won't believe the word as written, then you won't believe at all. Why? Because, listen, beloved, if you don't believe what God says, which will not pass away, and in comparison or contrast with a universe that has fixed laws you depend on, which will pass away, if you won't believe the unalterable word of God, guess who is the authority in your life? You. You are the authority in your life. You have become an authority greater than God. You have become an authority greater than your own, what your own senses see. You have been the one who's decided, I will trust in the, in the universe as I know it, in the things that I see, and in the earth as I deem the reality to exist before me. And yet when it comes to God's word, which is unalterable, unchangeable, as, as settled as God himself, you take it, and you read it and you study it. And we're not talking about Christians who struggle to bring their will underneath it. We're talking about those who repudiate it, treat it as optional, irrelevant, antiquated, redefinable. We're not talking about Christians who struggle to obey it. That describes all of us. We're talking about someone who would profess it but not act upon it at all. Let's redefine it. You know, evangelicalism redefines the truth all the time for convenience sake. 
we just redefine it. If you, I've been doing some more reading in church history, as I often do, and more recent church history, and it's just fascinating to me how, how quickly um, evangelicalism jumps on this bandwagon in order to, what we say, reach the culture or in order to um, have an influence and an impact when the culture is telling us to be quiet and be silent. As the culture wants to get rid of our influence, we are tempted in our hearts to ask questions about the truth. Should we really be saying it bluntly like that? Shouldn't we really come to the table and at least be invited to a dialogue because at least in the dialogue we're going to have influence? And so years ago, uh, evangelicals were, were taking the gospel, the plain, forward, straight, straightforward gospel off the table and putting it as, as back burner stuff to discuss and coming forward and saying, hey, what, what are the, what's the lowest common denominator upon which we can find unity? We're talking about people who were Christians trying to find unity with people who were not Christians. We're talking about people of the light trying to find harmony with people of darkness. And the, the scriptures are clear. There is no harmony between the two. So as people become hostile to the gospel, what are you going to do? Are you going to be like evangelicalism? It seems in an inevitability to sort of begin to redefine the scriptures because you want something else, intellectual respectability, a place at the table, cultural popularity, to be liked. Look, I, I'm just like you. I come to the Word of God. I know that what I say in sermons, in discipleship, and even to my unbelieving friends, I know that what I say has the potential for drawing a sharp line between who Christ is and what they really want, and it could create hostility. And then I'm going to be tempted. Do I, do I soften it? Do I redefine it? Do I consider it not relevant? Listen, the church has never done well when it wants to be liked. The church has never done well when it wants intellectual respectability, cultural acceptance. Never. We are in desperate times, beloved. Our culture is abandoning any Judeo-Christian moorings. What will we do? Because the Pharisees redefined the scriptures for their own advantage and ended up becoming leaders of a false gospel and false movement. How does that happen? It happens because you, you won't believe any authority but your own. How does Jesus illustrate it? Well, he tells them a story. And it's got frightening implications. Don't worry, we can't cover it till next time. <laughs> Bow with me. Lord, this is such a powerful argument that our Lord in his divine genius makes here. Everything we tend to rely on, which is in front of us, we count on it because you've established it and then we turn right around and take your promises and your word and, and we don't count on it because we don't like what it says and we want to be able to get around it. Please forgive us for that. Help us not to plant seeds so false that 
It would influence others to become false and therefore those who build their house on the sand. May we be those whose fruit manifests a good root. And Lord, may may we never redefine the scriptures or consider them optional or irrelevant or antiquated or something to flex with what we want. May we never repudiate your word in our hearts and therefore eventually our deeds while pretending as much as we are able some phony storefront, some pretense. But help us to stay under your word. Thank you for its chastening. Thank you for its work in our lives, in our minds. And we know that if we will believe your word by faith, then we will know its truth. But if we won't believe your word, then we become our own authority. We'll believe nothing but ourselves. Protect us from that folly and from how that points a finger at you as if you merely mused on spiritual things rather than spoke your truth settled in heaven. We pray that you'd strengthen our church with, with what our Lord has said. We pray it in your precious name. Amen.